Today's sermon comes from Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source." That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The well-known American storyteller Garrison Keillor claimed that... uh, you really didn't need Jesus to have a, a meaningful Christmas. Listen to what he said. Although you may decide that instead of Christmas carols, you're going to hold hands and breathe in unison, Christmas will still live deep in the cockles of your heart or actually in your neocortex stored as zillions of neuron impulses. It's your brain that sends tears to your eyes when you smell the saffron cookies that your grandma used to make or you sing Silent Night. So Christmas is, number one, lights. Number two, food. Number three, song. Number four, being with people you like. You need no more. Now, some of you may brisk at that statement. Uh, But whether you're a Christian or not, whether you're a follower of Christ or not, I think we can all agree that Christmas can become a holiday that's intended to evoke good feelings. Chestnuts roasting on the open fire, Jack Frost nipping at your nose, Santa Claus coming down the chimney, hot cocoa around the fire, all these things that Christmas can become. Now, if we ramp it up even another level and say, well, let's, let's keep Jesus as the focus of Christmas, even with that, Christmas can become almost a, another moralistic paradigm where the, the birth of Jesus and the child in the manger is, is supposed to teach us how to be more loving and more sacrificial and more humble. If that's all that Christmas is, that's actually pretty crushing. Because what happens when you have a Christmas season where things aren't very loving? You fight with your family. What happens when Christmas is a time where you don't really exhibit a whole lot of humility? 
In fact, your pride wells up, kind of makes a mess of things. Or what happens when you really don't find yourself very sacrificial at all during Christmas? In fact, you, you become very selfish, pretty upset over the gifts that you get or you didn't get. You see, Christmas and the story of Christmas and the baby in a manger is not just a, a, a scene that's supposed to teach us how to be more loving and more sacrificial and, and more humble. Now, what if God really became flesh and blood? If God became flesh and blood, if, if that, that baby born to poor parents, Mary and Joseph, who was laid in an animal feeding trough, was really God in the flesh, then that changes everything. And it begs the question why. See, the what of Christmas, God in the flesh in a manger, begs the question why. Why did God become flesh and blood? What's the reason for it? Now, we're going to answer this question over two services. This morning and at our Christmas Eve service tonight. Why did God become flesh and blood? First, we're going to see to destroy death. Now, I want to ask three questions under this destroying death. Three questions. One, why is God concerned about death? Why does God get upset about death? Second, why do we fear, why do we have a fear of death? Or what is the fear of death? And then finally, how does God actually destroy death? So let's start with why is God concerned about death? This, this passage here in Hebrews 2, the author of Hebrews talks all about death. It's, it's front and center in the passage. And the author is making the connection between Jesus' birth, the incarnation, and how that destroys death. But you have to ask the question, why is God concerned about death? Why is he even concerned about it? You know, there's a number of religions that teach and believe that death is the liberation of the soul. That death is actually a good thing because it liberates the soul. The soul's in bondage to the body, and at death, the soul is released. And what really matters is your soul. In fact, every major world religion outside of Christianity teaches this uh, to some degree. The, the Eastern philosophies and the Eastern religions teach that matter, material stuff, is really just an illusion. It doesn't exist. That the soul is real and that matter is, is an illusion. And so it, it doesn't matter. The soul is what counts. Or if you, if you look at Western philosophies and Western religions, dominated by Greek thought, those teach that matter or material is bad, it's dirty, it's polluted. And so salvation is getting free from that, freeing the soul, liberating the soul. Christianity is absolutely different. Christianity says that God is concerned about death. He's upset by death. Why? Because it's destroying the material. It's destroying your flesh and blood. That's what death does. And God is upset by that. He's concerned about that. Because we see in the scriptures, in the story of the Bible, that we have a God who cares about flesh and blood. I had a seminary professor. And I'll never forget it. I don't remember much of seminary. Maybe I shouldn't say that. But I remember this. Dr. Kelly. He said, 
God loves bodies. And I thought, that's weird. No, what he, God cares about bodies. He'd say it over and over. What was he saying? That God cares about the material. He cares about flesh and blood. And so the reason death so upsets him is because death destroys flesh and blood. Let me give you three word pictures that we see in the, in the Bible around this. First is creation. In Genesis 1, it says that God made man from what? The dust of the ground. God got his hands dirty. He got his hands dirty in the material and the dust of the ground to make Adam. Integration of spiritual material. Second word picture, incarnation. When the creation gets marred by sin, what does God do? He enters it. He puts on flesh and blood. He puts on the material. He hungers, he sweats, he gets tired. Why? To redeem flesh and blood. Third picture, resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to his disciples. And what'd they say? Ah, it's a ghost. It's not really, it's not really material. It's a ghost, it's a hologram. And what does Jesus do? Give me a piece of fish. And he eats a piece of fish in front of him. Why? To say, can a ghost do that? <laughs> No, I'm real, I'm flesh and blood. See, Christianity is about a God who created matter and is gonna redeem matter, the material, that the new heavens and the new earth is gonna be a place where we eat and we drink and we love and we learn and we hug and we are hugged you see, God cares about flesh and blood. He cares about the material. And that's why he's so upset by death because it destroys flesh and blood and it doesn't belong in his world. Now that leads to the second question. Why do we have a fear of death and what is the fear of death? If you look at verse 15, one of the reasons that God became flesh and blood, it says, was to deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, what does this mean? What is the fear of death? Why do we have a fear of death? Well, the reason is because death doesn't belong in God's world. It's an intruder. Now, all of you know how intruders can strike fear. I'll give you a couple examples. You all have fear of a home intruder, someone that would break into your home, steal your belongings, maybe harm you, harm your children. And so that fear of that intrusion, what's it do? Well, you try to mitigate against that fear by locking your doors, locking your windows. Maybe you get a security system. Uh, growing up, I was in middle school and this happened in South Florida. Our home got broken into uh, two Monday nights in a row. They came in through the front window. One time we were all laying around on the den floor having fallen asleep watching TV, the whole family. They came in, took my mom's purse, some other belongings and left. Next Monday night, same thing, except it was in the middle of the night, came in through a window. Guess what I did on the third Monday night? Guess what I slept with? My wooden Louisville Slugger baseball bat. And I was in middle school, so I had testosterone pumping through my new experience of puberty. And I had this idea that I was, if, if an intruder came into our house, if he came into my room, I was gonna knock him out with this baseball bat. 
Now, my bark was probably a lot louder than my bite. He didn't come. We didn't get broken in on Monday night. But I was scared. Because that person, whoever it was, didn't belong in our house. It was fearful. Uh, disease that intrudes your body. We have a number here at East that are sick, have had cancer, right? The dreaded diagnosis of cancer, right? There's a, there's a fear of, of disease intruding your body, whether it's cancer or something that devastating. There's a fear there. Why? Because disease doesn't belong. Death is the same way. The, way that, the reason there's just an inherent fear of death is because there's an understanding, whether you acknowledge it or not, that death doesn't belong. It's not natural. It's an intruder into God's world, into our lives. And so it strikes fear. Now, let me get more specific. What, what, is the, the, what are the reasons why we actually fear death, this intruder? Right, that comes into our world, that comes into our lives? Well, the answer to that question depends on where you're at with Jesus Christ. So I'll give you two scenarios. If you're, if you're not in Christ, meaning you haven't placed your faith in Christ, there's a fear of death that's, that's tied to a fear of judgment. Now, let me explain. There's a, there's a tendency for you to suppress truth, the scriptures say, that you suppress truth about who God is. And you can suppress it by engaging with atheism to say God doesn't exist or agnosticism to say God exists, but he's not knowable or, or maybe a false religion, right? You, you, you can suppress that truth. And what it, what it is, is it's a suppression of deep down this God awareness that you are sinful and that there's a judgment day coming. And so while, we're, while you're alive, you can keep God at a distance or you can try to. You can avoid church. You can avoid Christians who bug you. You can avoid the Bible. You can avoid all of that to try to stay clear of God. But death is that great equalizer. When deep down there's an understanding, I'm going to face my maker. And I'm going to have to give account for my sin and for my rebellion. And there's a fear there because deep down we know that we're sinful, that we can't pass through judgment day. You know, last uh, week, we had an older retired couple that moved in across from our house. House had been on the market for a long time. They moved in, and so the moving truck came, big semi-moving truck, came in from Washington. And so my son and I went out to, to greet them and to say hello and to introduce ourselves. And, and as they're unloading the truck, you know, he comes out and we're talking to him. And uh, he asked the dreaded question, what do you do? I'm a pastor. He said, wow, man, I'm Jewish. He said, but don't worry, we put up Christmas lights. <laughs> he said, but you'll see the Jewish star. But then he goes on to explain, he said, and I, and I don't know how we got here, but he said two years ago in Washington, he said two years ago, my son died of a heart attack. He was young. Uh, he had a wife and two teenage children. And he said the teenage son is the one that came into the room and found him and tried to administer CPR. Oh, just tragic, gut-wrenching. And he said to me, in your religion, in the Christian religion, at least you have the belief that people, when they die, go to heaven. 
In my religion, the Jewish religion, we believe that, that heaven and hell is what you make it here on earth. And then he said, but I have a hybrid view. He said, if you're good, you go to heaven. If you're bad, you go to hell. Now, I didn't ask the next question I'm going to put out here because of the sensitivity of what he had just shared about his son in the past two years dying. But here's the question. How good is good enough? How good is good enough? If, if you hold that view that if you're relatively good, you'll be okay for eternity, but if you're bad, you'll be separated from God for eternity. If you hold that view, you can't escape a fear of death. Because as you face death, the question becomes, was I good enough? What's the standard, right? There's an inherent fear of judgment outside of Christ. Now, what if you've trusted Christ? And if you understand the gospel and you understand that Jesus took judgment for you, that Jesus paid for it on the cross, that he took your sin, is there still fear of death? I think for the believer, fear of death is something different. It's not fear of judgment but it's fear of losing control. You know, we spend our life trying to control things. We spend our life doing it in several ways. We, we get the flu vaccine to ward off the flu. Although, do you know, random fact, rabbit trail, I'll admit it. Do you know this year, our pediatrician told us this past week that the flu vaccine is 10% effective this year? Big swing and a miss, okay? But we get the flu vaccine to ward off the flu. We, we buy homeowner's insurance. Why? To make sure that our house isn't destroyed forever by a catastrophic hurricane or a fire. We buy car insurance. Why? To make sure we don't lose our car forever if we, if we hit somebody and it gets totaled, right? We, we spend our lives trying to control and mitigate, but despite our best efforts, no one can avoid death. No one can avoid death. And at death, there is an instant loss of control, even the loss of an illusion of control. And that can produce a fear. So let's go to the third question. How does God deliver us from this fear of death? Fear of the intruder that doesn't belong. Look at verses 14 to 15. The last part of 14, that through death, he, Jesus Christ, might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, here's the question. Why, why are we talking so much about death? It's Christmas Eve. Why aren't we talking about the birth of Christ? Well, what had to happen for Jesus Christ to truly die? To truly die his flesh and blood to truly die. He had to be born. That's the connection that the author of Hebrews is making here, is that to, to become death, he really had to be flesh and blood. That he really had to put on flesh and blood. He wasn't a hologram. He wasn't a shadow. He didn't have super flesh. He didn't have super blood. Two distinct natures in one person. Fully God and fully human in one person. Not half God, half human. Fully God, 
fully human in one person. That's the only way that God could destroy the intruder of death that had come into his world and his creation. Now, he's the one who pronounced the curse of death in Genesis 3. But the only way that death could be defeated is if Jesus Christ was fully, fully human. How does this take away the fear? Fear of judgment, fear of losing control. Let's start with fear of judgment. Look at verse nine. But we see him, we see him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. What death is talked about here in verse nine, it's not physical death. Now Jesus tasted physical death, but so will you. We will all taste physical death. He tasted death for everyone. Everyone is defined in the next verse. Many sons to glory. This isn't a universal salvation. This is referring to the many sons who put their faith in Christ, translated to glory. That's the everyone, but it's, it's he tasted death for. That's substitution. It means that he... He tasted something that you don't have to. That's why it's not physical death here. It's spiritual death. It's eternal separation from God. It's hell, that Jesus Christ tasted hell for those who put their faith in Christ so that you don't have to taste hell. Now you see why his death destroys the devil who has the power over death or the power of death. Now this does not mean that the devil has the power over death. No, as I said in Genesis 3, it's God who pronounced the curse on Adam and Eve, on man after he rebelled. What it means, though, is that, that the devil uses the power of death, that the devil can use the power of death, which is really just the, the fear of judgment, to dangle it before you. Look at your sin. Look how awful you are. Look how wretched you are when you face God, when you die. What's your answer gonna be for your sin? You have no defense. That's, that's the devil. He's the accuser. And he accuses over and over. And Je Jesus silences those accusations because he tasted death for those who are in Christ. He tasted death. And so that fear of judgment is taken away because Jesus took judgment. Now, what about the, the fear of losing control? Well, earlier in verse eight, it says, now in putting everything in subjection to Jesus, he left nothing outside his control, that Jesus is in full control. Uh, John, the writer of the gospel of John and the writer of Revelation, when, when John uh, has a vision right, that is the book of Revelation, and when he meets the risen and exalted Christ, in Revelation chapter one, listen to this interchange between John and Jesus. Revelation 1, 17 to 18. John says, when I saw him, the risen and exalted Christ, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid, Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. See, Jesus says, fear not, John. I've got the keys to death. 
Death doesn't have the final word anymore. Death is not sovereign over you. I have the keys to death. Jesus is sovereign over death. And so the fear of losing control when you die, there's no fear there because Jesus has the power over death, the keys of death. He's in complete control. He removed spiritual death with his first coming. He will remove physical death with his second coming to eradicate it completely. But Romans 8 says that neither what? Death nor life can separate us from the love of Christ. There's no fear of death. So why did God become flesh and blood? First, to destroy death. Second, to be with you. To be with you. God desires relationship. He's a relational God. He desires to be with his children. Look at verse 11. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I, Jesus, will tell of your name, God the Father, to my brothers, which is referring to the many sons brought to glory, you and me. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Verse 13, behold, I and the children God has given me. You see, if God just wanted subjects, if he just wanted you to be subject to him, there would be no need for Christmas. But God wants a family. God wants children. Jesus wants brothers and sisters. And it's God's desire to have family that says the only way that that could happen is if Jesus actually took on flesh and blood. Right? That, that, that's verse 14. It says if, if Jesus was going to have brothers and sisters, then he had to put on the flesh and blood of his brothers and sisters. You say, why? Well, the, the, the clue's in verse 17. Look at it. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God or in service of God. A priest was a mediator between God and man. The, the purpose of the priesthood was to get us into the presence of God and to get the presence of God into us. Now, Exodus 33, Moses, if you remember, says to God, God, show me your glory, which was Moses' way of saying, God, give me your presence. And what's God's response? Moses, you can't see my face and live. My presence will crush you. But here we see in, in, in verse 17, that God becomes a baby so that we could be in his presence. I mean, what is more accessible than a baby? Think about that. What is more accessible than a baby? God, the creator of the universe, became a child. He became a baby. He became accessible. The same Presence and glory that would have crushed Moses comes in the baby Jesus. 
God's presence comes in the baby Jesus. And God's presence can come to you through Christ and through faith in Christ. And so now, because of the incarnation, because of God becoming flesh and becoming a baby, God's presence no longer will crush you if you're in Christ. It'll purge you. It'll cleanse you. Right? That's what verse 11 is speaking of. For he who sanctifies, Jesus who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. Right? That God's presence is a cleansing presence. And as you are in the family of God with God as your father and Jesus as your brother, you, you, you start to resemble the family. That's sanctification. That's, be, that's, that's becoming more and more holy. That the presence of God, the presence of being in his family, you become more like him. That God desires a family. He desires relationship. But not only that, he delights in his children. So he desires a family, and then he delights over his family, his children. The, the end of verse 11 may be one of the more shocking statements in this passage. And if it didn't shock you when we read it, let me read it again, because it's shocking. It says, that is why he, referring to Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers. You hear what that's saying? <laughs> Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you brother or sister. Now, the reason that's shocking is that if you have an awareness of your sin, and maybe even you feel shame over your sin and guilt over your sin, that is shocking to hear that Jesus Christ is not ashamed of you. You know, some of us probably grew up in homes, households where you, you may have heard from your parents over and over, or at least with some degree of regularity, I am so ashamed of you. And maybe as a parent, you've said that. You know what that means? When you make that statement, I am ashamed of you, what that says is, I am gonna create distance between me and you. I am going to disassociate myself from you. That's what it means. In a previous church that I served, there was a, a daughter in this family that got pregnant out of wedlock. And because this daughter, in the, in the opinion of her parents, was not remorseful enough over her sin, they decided to shame her. They said, we are ashamed of you, and you do not belong in this family right now in your state. And so they cut off all communication with her. They told the, uh, the, the other siblings, you will not talk to her. We're banning communication. Now, why? Why did they disown her? Why did they shame her? Say, we are ashamed of you. Well, there were two reasons. One was to try to maintain this upstanding reputation of the family, right? If we create distance, if we disassociate, we will let everybody know we don't approve of that. That's not who we are as a family. And the second was, is they were trying to shame her into repentance, which doesn't square with Romans 2. God's kindness leads us to repentance. So they shamed her. They, they, they were creating distance. They were disassociating themselves from her. 
And we learn in verse 11, Jesus does just the opposite. You're aware of your sin. I'm aware of my sin. In the midst of that, Jesus says, I am not ashamed of you, which means I'm not going to create distance. I am not going to disassociate myself. You say, why? Why? Look at, look at verse 11. What, what is the that referring to? Right? That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. What's the that referring to? Well, it's referring to the beginning of verse 11. All who are sanctified have one source. Well, what's the one source? Clearly, it's not a divine source because Jesus is divine and you and I aren't. No, the one source is the incarnation. One source that Jesus Christ put on, took on, became flesh and blood, was made like you in every way. He took on full humanity. Like I said, he wasn't a hologram. He wasn't a super flesh person or a super blood person. No, he took on your full humanity. And that's why he's not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister, to call you a sibling, because he shares your humanity, every part of it. Listen to this, every part of your humanity except for sin. And, and sin, Jesus not having sin doesn't make him less than human. Why? Because sin was not a part of the original design of humanity. The original design of humanity was not with sin. Sin is an intruder, just like death is an intruder. Doesn't belong. And so when Jesus says, I'm not ashamed of you, he's saying that because he shares your flesh and blood. He's like you in every way except for sin. I think about this. You know, we, we experience shame over our sin. You may be ashamed of yourself, or you may have parents or, or authority figures that say, I'm ashamed of you. When Jesus says, I'm not ashamed of you, do you see the connection here? He's not saying, I'm not ashamed of you because you've had a good week or a bad week or a sinful week or a sinless week. Or, that's not why he's not ashamed of you. If he was, listen, if his not being ashamed of you was connected to your sin, that would mean that his not being ashamed of you depends on the intruder that doesn't belong. No, Jesus says, I'm not ashamed of you. Why? Because I share your flesh and blood. I share your, your humanity as it was originally designed. And verse 11 I'm committed to sanctifying you, which says I'm committed to getting rid of this intruder called sin. It doesn't belong in you and neither does death. So Jesus says, I'm not ashamed of you. You know, that's the negative. Said positively, it's Jesus saying, I delight in you. I delight in you as brother and sister because I am like you in every way, except for this intruder, sin, that I'm getting rid of, that I'm gonna sanctify you and purge it from you, along with death. If we can sum this up, why did God become flesh and blood? 
is to destroy the intruders, <laughs> to destroy death that doesn't belong, to destroy sin that doesn't belong, so that God could be with you, delight in you, love you, and live with you for eternity in a family that you can't even imagine what the dynamics are like. In this time of year, I recognize and we all recognize that around the holidays and around Christmas, some of you have wonderful family experiences. Some of you are dreading Christmas day or the day after. That's just a reality of the world we live in that's broken. And God says, I'm building a family and the dynamics of this family and the new heavens and the new earth with me as father and Jesus as your brother and you as brother and sister without sin and death and crying and pain, it's gonna be amazing. Just how I intended it to be in the beginning. And so what do we celebrate Advent? We celebrate Advent because Christ has come and he has put on flesh and blood and he is like you in every way except for sin. And therefore, there's a third point to this sermon. Come back tonight at 5 p.m. There's a tremendous amount of joy that erupts in the heart when you understand that Jesus actually took on your full humanity. He is your brother. You are his brother or sister. Let's pray. Father, the incarnation is nothing short of amazing. That you, God, would, would become flesh and blood. That in the person of Jesus, that you would become like us in every way except for sin. And that, Father, you came and you entered your marred and sinful world because you are committed to getting rid of the intruders, the intruder of death, the intruder of sin, that you're committed to sanctifying, making holy your world and your people. And we as your children, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we rejoice. And Father, I do pray for those here this morning that maybe have not bowed the knee to Jesus that have not submitted to Christ, that they would see the pulsing love that you have for your creation and your people and your desire for a family and your desire for a relationship. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would draw those people to yourself, that they would come to know you, Jesus, and be able to rejoice at the true meaning of Christmas. Father, as we close in worship now and we sing about joy, would you cause joy to erupt in our hearts? We pray this in Christ's name, amen.